Good afternoon. So good to see many of you today. If you have your Bibles, please get ready to turn to John chapter 20. is where we'll be at this afternoon. How long does it take you to change your ways? How long does it take you to be convinced that something has to be different? What would it take to shock you into realization that would utterly recourse your life? It would have to be something incredibly significant, wouldn't it? After all, we are creatures of habit. Uh, We don't like to change. Change takes time. It's rarely, if ever, instant. Change and growth is a process. Faith is like that. None of us became awesome Christians overnight. Spiritual maturity often takes months, years, uh, decades. In fact, none of us, there's not a single person in this room who have arrived. None of us graduated from sin. We're all growing. We are all learning. It's just that the more mature of us have been humbled more. Uh, We have failed more, experienced more of God's mercy. By God's unrelenting grace, stuck with it more, persevered longer. The progress of sanctification growing more in holiness, in Christ-likeness, doesn't happen on our own. It's God's work in us. And our absolute dependence on him in the word, through prayer, by leaning on the church body. That brings about lasting transformation. Amen? Well, in our passage this afternoon, we are given a picture of this reality. Of our absolute incapability versus Jesus' patient care for his disciples. You would think seeing a dead man come back to life would change things, wouldn't you? You would think an encounter with the risen Christ would transform your life completely, don't you? Yet the disciples, who were slow to change, who were slow to fully grasp, they were hesitant to step out of their comfort zone that they had formed for themselves. And we are much the same. The passage of Jesus' appearance we have before us is a call to step forth in faith. It's an invitation to follow. It is a commission to obey. It's a calling to courage. Jesus says in John 16, in this world, you will have tribulation. In this world, you will have tribulation, but take courage, for I have overcome the world. We're wrapping up our study in the gospel according to John with just one more sermon left in our series, In the Beginning Was the Word. And our passage this afternoon are the events that took place after Jesus' resurrection, when he appears multiple times to his disciples. But the question is, for what purpose? Jesus patiently reminds them the purpose of his mission, and he invites them to participate in the Great Commission. So from John chapter 20, verse 19, through chapter 21, verse 14, I want to share with you four reasons, four reasons for the purpose of Jesus' appearance. Four reasons for the purpose of Jesus' appearance. Here's the outline so you can follow. Point number one, for our gladness, verses 19 through 20. For our gladness. Point number two, for our commissioning, from verses 21 through 23. For our believing, verses 24 through 31. And for our reminding, chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. For our gladness, for our commissioning, for our believing, and for our reminding. Brothers and sisters, I pray that this word would remind you and encourage you anew that our God is patient with us. Amen? He is compassionate. He is gracious. 
He is slow to anger. He is steadfast in his dealings with us. And he is working on us. He is working on us, hallelujah, to trust him more fully and to follow him more wholeheartedly and for us to participate in his mission more boldly and unashamedly. And he provides everything, all that we need in order that we may be equipped, that we will be able to finish the task. Visitors and guests, if you are here and you are not a Christian or are not certain that you are, welcome. We're so glad that you are here. We have been praying for you. And we pray that these words that you hear about Jesus, our Lord and Savior, will be words of comfort for you. We pray that you will see Christianity not as a set of rules to follow, that it's not just some religion, but rather the most precious and glorious and amazing relationship with the one true living God who loves those who are his to the end. We pray that you will see Jesus for who he truly is today through his word. So without further ado, let's turn to our text found on page 906 and 907 of the Blue Bibles around you. And as you turn there, I want to encourage you to please keep your Bibles open and follow along so you won't get bored as I read and preach, so that you know that what I share is God's words for you. John chapter 20, verse 19 through chapter 21, verse 14 says this. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called a twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came into the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. 
Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. The question that we have before us from the text that we have just read is, if Jesus had completed the work that was necessary for redemption on the cross, when he declared it is finished by his resurrection, cemented that reality, what was the purpose of Jesus' appearances before his ascension? Why did Jesus remain on earth for 40 to 50 days when he had said multiple times before and after his death and resurrection, I am going again to my Father? Again, what was the purpose of Jesus' appearance? Point number one, for our gladness. From verses 19 through 20. Look at those verses again. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week. Means, of course, the evening of that day of the resurrection, Sunday, the first day of the week. It says the doors were locked where the disciples were for the fear of the Jews. So the ten disciples minus Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, and Thomas, whom we are told is not present, are gathered, perhaps, to discuss what Peter and John saw in the morning. The empty tomb, the remaining grave clothes, and rightly so, they were scared. It says, for the fear of the Jews, they had locked the doors tight so nobody could come in. They feared the Jews might accuse them, perhaps, of stealing the body. They feared what might be done to them as Jesus' followers. But if you think about it, isn't it a curious situation? They knew something incredible and significant that it has happened. They knew that Jesus wasn't in the tomb. They didn't steal the body. You'll see more and more how what is described of them is completely proving of the falsification of this theory that the disciples stole the body. They remembered what Jesus had said, that he would rise again. Peter had carefully examined the tomb. John had saw and believed. But still, still, they feared the Jewish leaders. Verse 18 of chapter 20 clearly says, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her, that Jesus had said, he is ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And remember, the author of this gospel is John, the beloved disciple. He is writing these record of events. He himself was the witness of these things. Yet he writes, the disciples still feared the Jews. In one sense, we completely understand, can't we? Most of the disciples had deserted the Lord Jesus, their teacher and master, in the most needed hour of his torture and crucifixion. They scattered uh, for the fear of their lives. They were cowards. They were ashamed. Although they had heard from Jesus' very own lips that he would rise again. Although they saw his signs that pointed to the greater sign, the resurrection. Resurrection of a dead person was simply not something they were used to. They were thinking, they must have been thinking, did they see a ghost? Were they hallucinating? What were they to make of this resurrected Jesus? 
Not only that, in their guilt and shame, what was Jesus feeling toward them? Oh my goodness, Jesus is actually alive. Was Jesus angry? Was Jesus disappointed? The disciples had a lot to process. And that's why the words to which Jesus greets them has so much significance. Peace be with you. And Jesus repeats this greeting two other times, two more times in this passage to ensure his disciples that his appearing is a meeting of peace and not a reason to fear at all. Jesus wasn't simply saying a standard cultural greeting, shalom, as in, hey, how are you? What's up? What's good? Peace. No, Jesus intended to comfort the disciples in their fear and to reassure them of his love for them. And for them to recall the words he had spoken to them in John chapter 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let your hearts not be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You see, Jesus intended to remind them of the spiritual and theological reality of their standing with God after what Jesus had just accomplished through his death and resurrection, according to Romans 5.1, which says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus' words, peace be with you, signified the disciples' spiritual state and of all who would come to trust in Jesus, the risen and living King. Now, there's a lot of debate between biblical scholars about how Jesus appeared into that locked room and stood among them. Was Jesus in his resurrected body able to walk through walls? There's a lot of theological debate about that. Some theologians are dead set that that is conjecture, that the writing is simply missing the details of how Jesus actually came in. But whether Jesus walked through the walls or he is perhaps a master locksmith is really of small significance. I mean, Jesus rose again from the dead. He turned water into wine. He gave sight to the blind. He calmed the raging storms. He made lame man walk. He raised Lazarus back to life. Later on, we see Jesus ascending into heaven. Now, that's what I'm really curious about, right? Would we, uh, in our resurrected state, like Jesus, be able to fly? I'm curious about that. Anyways, walking through walls, ain't no thing, right? The point is peace. Jesus brings peace to the anxious and fearful hearts of the disciples. Isn't it amazing? Our Lord's tender care, his posture and his very presence was one of a patient parent. Look at verse 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. There is no tone of anger here. No tone of disappointment or a sense of betrayal. Jesus didn't allude to them that I feel betrayed at all. Jesus says here, come look. Look at my scars. Look at my side. It's really me. I'm here with you like I said I would be. I love that, don't you, brothers and sisters? This is our Lord and our Savior. When we fail him, when we disappoint him, he is not angry with us. He doesn't berate us with scolding. He says, peace be with you. Just as in 1 Timothy 1.15, which says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, which means really get it through your head that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Jesus came and suffered on the cross so that you would know, that you would know, that you would know that you are loved and forgiven and set free and don't have to fear so that you can be glad. Look at the last phrase of verse 20. 
Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. The important words are then and saw. When they saw Jesus came in peace. When they saw with their own eyes and felt with their flesh and experienced with their hearts Jesus' tender compassion and understanding and shalom, they were glad. They were happy. It was the fulfillment of Jesus' words in John 16, 22. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Brothers and sisters, Jesus died and rose again. He could have demanded the disciples worship right then and there. They ought to have feared him, trembled at his feet in awe. They were in the presence of God, the Son, the eternal creator of the universe, the life giver, the promise and prophesied Messiah of the scriptures. Yet... He appears for their gladness. See, I told you, don't be afraid. Have peace. Brothers and sisters, again, contemplate on this reality. This is our God. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 13, 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the same tenderness, the same patience, the same care and love he had for the disciples, we can experience today in him. So what are you going through in your life that you are fearful of? What in your life are you ashamed of or disappointed God in? Jesus says, peace be with you. Jesus says, my peace I give to you. Jesus had said it in John 15, 11, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. And recalling back to that verse I just shared with you from John 16, 22. In the risen Christ, Jesus says, no one, no one, no one will take away your joy. Christian, do you understand what this means? In whatever circumstance of your life, whether in sufferings or sorrows, the joy of the Lord is always, always with us. The only reason you may lack joy is when you give it away. So let this word be a reminder for anyone here this afternoon. The risen Lord appeared to the disciples and revealed himself to me and you for our gladness. Ask yourself this afternoon, are you happy in Jesus? Are you happy in Jesus? You should be. I wish we could have sang that song today. Point number two, what was the purpose of Jesus' appearing for our commissioning from verses 21 through 23? Look at verse 21, it says this, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am ascending to you. Jesus repeats, peace be with you. And whenever scripture repeats, it's drawing our attention to the importance. Whereas Jesus says peace the first time, have peace about me, have peace and be glad. Jesus, this second time, says peace be with you regarding what I am about to say. And what does he say? As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So this is John's version of the Great Commission. There are five versions of it in the New Testament, in each of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in the first chapter of Acts. Again, as I said, whenever Scripture repeats, it's very important. And whenever Scripture repeats itself five times, it's even more important. And we can guess why the disciples may have needed some extra dose of peace. You get what I'm saying? They had just deserted the Lord and rabbi of three years, as I said. They were cowering in fear of the Jewish leaders. They didn't want to be crucified also. Yet here is Jesus, not only as a dead man alive, he is calling the disciples to go and be and do as he did and be sent as he has been sent. And the disciples are thinking to themselves, whoa, 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 Jesus, we were glad for a second there, but you're telling us to unlock these doors 
and go? We have so many questions. That's what the disciples were thinking. And that's why the next verse makes so much sense. Look at verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now again, there's a lot of theological debate about this verse. A number of you asked some really good questions yesterday morning at EMP, early morning prayer. For example, what does it mean Jesus breathed on them? And what does it signify? Why does Jesus say, receive the Holy Spirit? Didn't the Holy Spirit come at Pentecost in Acts 2? Was this some sort of pre-Pentecost just for the disciples to set them apart as apostles? Was it some sort of special impartation of giftings? And then questions like, if they did receive the Spirit here, why did they go back to fishing in the following passage, etc., etc.? I know you guys were all asking these questions, right? And these are all really good questions for the astute student of biblical exegesis. As my friend Pastor Garrett Connor wears a t-shirt that says, check your Jesus before you wreck your Jesus. Some people got it, some people didn't. And I say that because the misinterpretation of these verses, verses 22 and 23, have been the source of much heresy in the church, capital C, the church, particularly in Pentecostal churches in their understanding of spirit baptism, and in Roman Catholic churches in their practice of confession to priests. I'll get more on that in a second when I talk about it in verse 23. Anyways, in addressing verse 22, what Jesus was doing and meant when he breathed on the disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit, the late Pastor James Montgomery Boyce helpfully argues this. The contradicting views and debates regarding John, who apparently speaks of the impartation of the Holy Spirit to the disciples on the night of the resurrection, and the author of Acts, who speaks of a special coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost 40, 50 days later, is unnecessary. He's, he's saying that the debate, all these questions are unnecessary. And so Boyce writes this helpfully, and I quote, Obviously, the Holy Spirit came in power in a special way on Pentecost to inaugurate the church age in Acts 2. But are we supposed to think that there was no impartation of the Spirit or no working of the Spirit in the disciples' lives before that time? Earlier in Christ's ministry, Peter had confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus had responded how? By saying that uh, this had been revealed to Peter by God. Was this apart from the Spirit? No, of course not. Did Peter believe without the opening of his mind and heart by the direct action of the Holy Spirit upon him? Of course not. Similarly, earlier on in the morning of the resurrection, John had entered the tomb, remember? And he believed in the resurrection. So then, was this insight achieved apart from the Spirit? No, of course not. The Holy Spirit was there all along and would be so even in greater measure at Pentecost. What Jesus is indicating in our text is that He is the source of the Spirit and that nothing can be done in the Christian life. Indeed, one is not even a Christian apart from the Spirit working in our lives. So Christ breathing on and imparting the Holy Spirit to His disciples reminds us of the creation in which the Almighty God breathed into the first man, Adam, so that he became a living soul. And so Jesus is teaching us that we must be created anew if we are truly to be his and serve him faithfully. Close quote. As such, what Jesus is doing is highly symbolic and significant. Although the disciples may not get it immediately, he is showing them, reminding them again, apart from me, you can do nothing. He is showing them they have all they need to fulfill the task Jesus was calling them to. It's been all provided. Jesus was teaching them, in me, you are a new creation. 
Now, I had mentioned that Jesus' commissioning of the disciples is recorded five times in the New Testament. And each time there are different emphases. In Matthew, which is the well-known Great Commission passage, there is an emphasis on the authority of the Lord. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore make disciples of all nations, Matthew 28. In Mark, there's an emphasis on the final judgment. Jesus says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not will be condemned, Mark 16. In Luke, uh, the emphasis is the fulfillment of prophecy. This is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, Luke 24. And in Acts, presents Jesus' grand vision for world evangelization. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in all Samaria and to the ends of the earth, Acts 1, verse 8. And Boyce, again, notes that John's version is unique. Pay attention, this is so good. In that Jesus links our commissioning with his own commissioning from the Father. That's very important in the interpretation of the next verse, verse 23. That's why the phrase, peace be with you, is repeated. And it's linking the previous command to the commissioning of the Lord. This is why repetitions are important. Again, it means pay attention. Simply, simply, simply. The peace that Jesus brings by his death and resurrection and his appearing, the peace, dare I say, Jesus imparts on the disciples by the Holy Spirit is what the disciples are to extend to others. That's why, look at verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is not, this is not Jesus telling the disciples, they themselves, the disciples themselves, have the authority to forgive sins of people. That would be ridiculous. What could the disciples have done on their own power? No authority is given to the disciples. But Jesus is to be proclaimed. The forgiveness granted for them by Jesus' death and resurrection. God is the only one who can forgive sins. Not man, not disciples, not even apostles. Jesus says, go tell them of it so the world will know of their forgiveness. Otherwise, their forgiveness would be withheld. The grammatical, passive, perfect form of the word forgiven confirms the fact of this argument, that the forgiveness they are to proclaim and extend has already been achieved. It's not for future forgiving, if you will. So any notion that the Roman Catholic priest claim or any heretical teachings that requires confession of sins for the absolution of sins by man or by a human being, that is simply, utterly unbiblical. It's false teaching. It's recogesis. Okay? Wrecking Jesus. It's wrecking Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this is why ecclesiology, what we believe, the Bible says the church is, is so important. It's essential. The authority given to us as Christians, the authority given to us as Christ's body, the church, is not anything we have of our own. We cannot forgive sinners. We cannot convert sinners. Goodness, this passage teaches us even an encounter with the resurrected Jesus can't change us if the Spirit himself doesn't work in us. The authority that we have is to proclaim and to protect the what and the who of the gospel. What is the gospel? Who is a part of this local gospel community? Who belongs? Who doesn't? Who is forgiven? Who is not? Who is a genuine Christian? Who is not? That's our duty. That's our authority given by Jesus, by the power of the Spirit. This is the reason why we practice and uphold 
biblical church membership at New Covenant Baptist Church. Because the Bible teaches that the church is made up of born-again Christians. Not nominal Christians, Christians by name only, not skeptics. Of course, all are welcome to worship with us every Sunday. There is nothing more or better than for non-Christians to hear the good news of Jesus. Because faith comes by hearing. The good news, the gospel of Jesus, that Christ, the promised Messiah, truly God and truly man, was sent by our holy and eternal God to live the sinless life and to die the substitute death on the cross to pay for the penalty of our sins and to rise again on the third day, conquering sin, Satan, and death for good. And that by repentance and faith, that we may have new life and eternal life with him forevermore. We love for our guests and visitors, for non-Christians to join us every Sunday and to hear this news. And even for ourselves as Christians, to hear the gospel over and over again, week after week, is so good because Romans 1.16 says, for the gospel is the power unto salvation. Yet the church, of course, is composed of regenerate, redeemed sinners. And each member has a responsibility as a part of the body to exercise their authority and gifts to unite the body, to build up the body for the common good, according to 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, to uphold the covenant we made before God and before one another, to disciple one another in the word. This is why we believe elder-led congregationalism is biblical. This is why we believe that our Baptistic reform doctrine and ecclesiology matters. Somebody say amen. amen. Jesus appeared for our commissioning. Go and do this. As I have been sent, you go do the same. Point number three, wrapping it up. What was the purpose of Jesus' appearing? For our believing. For our believing, verses 24 through 31. Verses 24 through 31 covers the account of Thomas, often known in church history, and get this, you guys know this, as doubting Thomas. Kind of stinks for him, but kind of deserves it too, right? For whatever reason, Thomas wasn't with the ten disciples when Jesus first appeared. Actually, we know the reason. He tells the disciples in verse 25, when the disciples tell him, hey, we have seen the Lord, he says to the other disciples, unless I see his hands, the marks on his nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nail, and place my hands inside his side, I will never believe. That's what Thomas says. Thomas thinks his fellow disciples are lying. Now, before you judge him too harshly, we can give Thomas the benefit of the doubt. Okay, Believing that a dead man came back to life takes some serious convincing, some serious evidence. So his doubting is not entirely ungrounded. But nevertheless, through Thomas, there are some lessons to be learned for us. There is a purpose why Thomas is held up as the prototype of the doubting disciple forever etched in redemption history. His stubbornness, his hardness of heart, you can call it whatever you like, his detective-like personality, anal retentive personality, contrarian disposition toward God, is exemplified as a model of what not to be in verse 29, which says this. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Those who believed without having to see are blessed. Those like the Pharisees who demanded a sign were cursed. As Jesus said in Matthew 12, 39 through 41, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. 
As Pastor Jeremy had been preaching from the book of Jonah, here's the point of Jonah. Jonah was pointing to Jesus, the greater Jonah. Everything Jonah was not, Jesus is. Jesus is not the bitter prophet like Jonah was. That forgiveness was extended to Nineveh. Jesus was not bitter about that. Jesus is better. Jesus was completely aware that God is the author and the giver of life. Jesus was teaching that his death and resurrection is enough for our faith, for our believing. Brothers and sisters, friends and visitors, is it enough for you? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are those who have not yet seen but still believe. In a sense, all of us who have heard the word and believed are blessed, aren't we? What precious treasure is 1 Peter 1.18? Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible, glorious joy. Goodness, brothers and sisters, don't we love Jesus? Isn't he so lovely and glorious? Brothers and sisters, we aren't delusional. We are blessed. We are favored. We are chosen of God. So don't be like the reluctant prophet Jonah, who was so entitled, who was so stubborn after serving God so reluctantly, he thought he deserved a vacation, a nice shade to rest on. He thought he deserved some sort of commendation from God. A brief thanks, by the way, to all who served so faithfully at Carol's and Coffee last night. Those of you who helped organize and participate, I was so encouraged and thankful. You could have said, yeah, whatever to that event, but you showed up, you served, you encouraged, you were present, you glorify God, and you blessed others. Unlike Jonah, you didn't do it for yourself. Jesus demanded no such thing for himself. Jesus was betrayed. Jesus was tortured, denied, mocked, and whipped, and crucified. Yet he comes to comfort and restore others, his disciples. He even meets Thomas where he was in his doubt, in his stubbornness, in his unbelief. Brothers and sisters, guests and visitors, where are you today? In your doubts, in your discouragement, in your loneliness, in your frustration, in your sicknesses, in your anxieties, in your depression, in your affliction, sorrows and uncertainties, Jesus meets you where you are for your believing, for your assurance. What do you want from him? Ask him. Trust him. Look to him. I guarantee he will answer you. He will encourage you. He will love on you. Here's a promise from Psalm 91, verses 14 through 15. Write this down. It's a nugget. It's a God bomb, whatever you want to call it. Psalm 91, 14 through 15 says this. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him. And show him my salvation. Here's another Jeremiah 33.3. Call to me and I will answer you. And will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. Here's another Matthew 11.28. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Brothers and sisters, Jesus appeared for our believing. Just one more brief practical application from Thomas. When you doubt, when you fear, when you feel like you don't want to show up to church, come, show up anyways. You never know when Jesus will show up and shower extra blessings on you. Thomas missed out for the first time, didn't he? The other disciples got extra time with Jesus. Now, I'm not comparing church to the actual presence of the risen Christ, 
but it's the closest thing we got here on earth. Sure, some Sundays music is a bit off. It's either too cold or too hot, depending on what Sunday. It's raining or snowy, depending on what the weather is like. Sometimes your children are crazy. Sometimes you get in a fight with your spouse right before service. Strange how that happens. Sometimes the sermon is really bad or really long like this one. Okay, you can tell some Sundays I'm struggle city up here. But whatever it may be, don't miss the gathering of God's people. The ministry of presence is the best thing you can do for God, for yourself, and for others. Who knows? Simply by showing up, it might be the most encouraging thing for you and for someone else that day. These are not my words. These are words of Scripture. Hebrews 10.25, do not neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Amen? I love Thomas's response in experiencing Jesus' compassion and patience and care. Probably the answer to all of our prayers, all of our needs, all the prayers on the behalf of the unbelieving friends, families, whoever. Thomas's answer, my Lord and my God. I don't know what compelled Thomas to be around with the other disciples a second time, but you've got to show up to experience blessing. You've got to bring your friends with you to the place of grace, to the house of God, to the church of Jesus Christ. For our believing. That is the purpose of it all. That is the purpose of John's gospel. Look at verse 30 through 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Brothers and sisters, don't miss it. These words were written for your believing, for your living in him. Blessed are those who believe. Believing is seeing. Fourth and final point, much shorter point. What was the purpose of Jesus' appearing? For our reminding. Now the next point covers a substantial chunk of our text, 14 verses. And it can really be a whole sermon in itself, but I thought it was simple enough to serve us the point. Jesus appeared the third time, according to John's gospel, after the resurrection to his disciples, for their reminding. Here we find an interesting scenario. Jesus had appeared at least two times. Some biblical scholars say, considering the other synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this may be the fifth time Jesus is appearing. The disciples had been comforted. Uh, They had been reassured. They had been imparted the Holy Spirit and commissioned. Yet here's a predicament. Look at chapter 21, verses 1 through 3. We find seven of the 11 disciples, Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples. They were all together. And what were they doing? Back to fishing. Back to where they started before they met Jesus. What in the world? Some theologians say that the disciples are actually committing apostasy. They were commissioned, but they rejected the commission, and they're back to their old ways, to their old jobs, to their old lives. Now, I don't know that we can conclude about this, and it really serves us no purpose in arguing what we can't know for sure. But what is certain, what the point is in this story is that this scene provides for us a very significant symbol, a very important lesson. One commentator notes a microcosm of the church toiling amidst a restless world. Basically, it's a picture. Basically, it's a reminder of when the disciples were first called by Jesus. A very similar incident, you know, happened. The disciples, who were just normal fishermen back then, catching fish all night, They were professional fishermen. They knew how. They knew when. They knew the waters. They knew the fish. Yet for whatever reason, no fish that night. And it was Jesus' initial invitation. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. 
since then, remember? They spent three incredible years with Jesus. They saw his works. They heard his words. They knew Jesus died and resurrected just as he predicted he would. They knew now that soon he would ascend back to the Father. They believed it with all their hearts. Of him, they were sure. Of him, they were sure. But of themselves, not so much. They knew God. They knew Jesus was God. But what about their failures? What about what they had done to disappoint themselves? Jesus had forgiven them. They just could not forgive themselves, you see. You see their excitement. When they see Jesus, don't you? It is the Lord. Yet they feel embarrassed. They lacked confidence. They were insecure. The disciples acknowledged their failures and they were discouraged. And that's the reason why, brothers and sisters, Jesus appears to them again. Do you see this? Am I making this up? Jesus had come to encourage them in their failure by reminding them of their first calling to be fishers of men. It's almost as a bookend, a reset, a new start in the dawning of a new age where Christ's redemption work was accomplished. The disciples were commissioned as apostles to establish the new covenant church in the age to come. The revolution was at hand. But you know what? It had already begun. At the arrival of Jesus, he had proclaimed the kingdom of God is at hand. Man, but such a good lesson here for us, isn't it? One commentator says, failure is the most creative phenomenon of life. Failure demands that we assess our past methods to see what we have done right or wrong. Failure helps us to discard the useless and obsolete and opens us up to new ideas. And Christianity, Malcolm Muggeridge says, from Golgotha onwards has been the sanctification of failure. Peter, the great rock, rose from the rock heap of failure. Our failures bring us face to face with the weaknesses and the inadequacies that lie within. So that God's strength can be made perfect in our weakness. As 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And this commentator says, it is in the breaking of these clay vessels, our failures, that the riches of God are exposed for all to see. It is primarily our failures that create in us a poverty of spirit and thus makes us fit receptacles for the blessing of the kingdom of God. That's why, again, Christianity from Golgotha onwards has been the sanctification of failure. Many years ago, a young man ran for the legislature in a large state and was badly defeated. He next entered a business, failed, and spent the next 17 years of his life paying off the debts of his worthless partner. He was in love at once with a beautiful woman to whom he became engaged, but she died. Re-entering politics, he ran for Congress, but was badly defeated again. Then he tried to get an appointment in the United States land office, but failed. He became a candidate for United States Senate and was badly defeated there again also. Two years later, he was again defeated. It was one failure after another, many, many setbacks, but he refused to give up, and eventually he became the president of the United States, perhaps the greatest. His name was Abraham Lincoln. Failure is the absolute necessity of spiritual progress and maturity. Now, as I'm wrapping this up, in conclusion, don't hear this sermon and hear me saying, go run to be the president of the United States. Or persevere in achieving your personal ambitions. That's not what I'm saying at all. God has no obligation whatsoever to bless you in your earthly pursuit of success. But here we have a picture of Jesus appearing before his failed disciples. 
and reminding them again of what they were called to do and what they were supposed to be. Fishers of men. This scene is the microcosm of the gospel. God uses the lowly to bring about his glory. God uses the lowly to bring about his glory. The gospel brings us face to face with the reality about ourselves. We are sinful and depraved. We have contributed nothing. Christ accomplished everything. Yet Christ calls us to participate. Christ calls us to go and tell, make disciples. Yes, we ourselves have nothing in ourselves. We can catch nothing. That was the picture. No fish. But by his word, the net explodes. Jesus appears for the disciples, reminding. And his word still speaks to us through his spirit. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Brothers and sisters, in 2023, let's continue to go and make disciples together. Let's continue to baptize and disciple in his name as a local church. Let's continue to look to him, trust him, and work for him to preach and proclaim him until he returns. Let's go and do as he has done for their gladdening, for their encouraging, for their believing, for their reminding. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your compassion. We thank you for your patience. We thank you for this word that reminds us in our failures to persevere in you. We are nothing. Apart from you, we can do nothing. But in Christ, we have all we need. Father, help us to be renewed in our faith toward you and to obey you in the new year, to serve you wholeheartedly, not simply worrying about the things in our lives, but thinking about your kingdom. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. May we do that faithfully and humbly. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.